I'm Tom Morello, host of Maximum Firepower. A weekly podcast focusing on the music, the moments, and the movements that have shaped my worldview and left an indelible mark on me as an artist and activist. Correct with maximum firepower. For you and me. This is Tom Morello's Maximum Firepower. I'm Tom Morello, and you are listening to Maximum Firepower, and it is a pleasure and an honor to have Paul Stanley, the ring leader of the psycho circus that is KISS, on the show today. It's a pleasure to have you. I couldn't imagine being any place better than this, Tom. <laughs> well, thanks so much. So on this round of Maximum Firepower, we're doing top 10 lists. So we'll go back and forth. Your top five moments in history, the long and glorious history of that band, and then my five top moments as a KISS fan. So I'll let you start off. The stage oh is yours. Give, give me, in no particular order necessarily, they don't need to be ranked, but give me one of your top five moments in the history of your band KISS. I have to almost have... Uh at the beginning to kind of make an apology because some people are going to be offended and some people will say, how come you didn't mention this or you didn't right. mention that? Of course, yes. And it's not a disrespect. It's just what comes to my mind first. Absolutely. So with that disclaimer, yeah. <laughs> I, I will, you know, there, there wouldn't be a kiss had I not met Gene. Mm -hmm. So if we want to start there, we can. Mm -hmm. Or we can start with the the actual band. You know, I, I I remember, for example, Ace walking in for rehearsal for audition, and when he plugged in, there was suddenly an, uh, this epiphany. I just went, "That's it." Mm -hmm. There was sonically, there was a sound that may not have been the sound of a, a bunch of virtuosos. We were virtuosos, actually. <laughs> But the sound that we created, the four of us together, was world-class in whatever way that you would interpret that. It just sounded like, okay, we've got it. And where exactly was that? Like what borough, what streets uh, was? That was 10 East 23rd Street okay. in yeah. Manhattan, where, yeah. where the band first got together. And uh, that was really pivotal. Uh, yeah. it, it was the day that the missing piece of the puzzle came in and the sum became greater than the parts. That's awesome. And I remember as ledge, as lore goes, he had like his tennis shoes were mix matched, yes. right? And was sort of heading, <laughs> which yes, was he, a, a yes, harbinger he, of things to come. Yeah. Yes, he <laughs> he was uh, very aptly named Space Ace. Yes, yes. <laughs> My first moments, I was trying to sort of narrow down sort of the, the moment that I was introduced to the band was, I don't even believe it was at a record store. It might have been at like a local, like, grocery store or thrift shop where the destroyer record was was there and i was a huge fan of comic books and there was I, you know kiss was my favorite band before i heard a note of music you know i i picked up that album but then it was but i decided for sort of my first uh, most impactful kiss moment it was the it was the magic of those records there was something about them one there was, it was something in the bob ezrin production of destroyer but those destroyer rock and over and love gun that really sort of transported me out of my sort of dull suburban existence and made me think that there are worlds beyond this that can be unlocked via rock and roll. Now, this was all great in my mind and it was sort of light, I had the poster on the wall and whatnot, but for the local record store, Dog Ear Records in Libertyville, it was a nightmare because I would call them daily. This was between Rock and Roll and Love Gun. I would call them daily to say, 
when is the new Kiss record? As I read in some Cream magazine or something, Kiss record, Kiss has a record coming out. When is the new Kiss record coming out? And they'd say, um, we have your name here, Tommy, and we're going to let you know as soon as it comes in the store. I said, okay, great. I'm going to call you tomorrow. I said, don't call us tomorrow. We're going to let you know. And I called tomorrow until it came in. <laughs> you know, it's funny because uh, Eric and I have spoken about this. The, the, the whole fandom back then was so much less connected through technology. Yes. So nowadays we have dates of release. You know when to expect right, right. Uh, an album. Back then, I can remember just going to local record stores That's and right. bam, all of a sudden the album I was looking for was there. Or I didn't even know that there was an album in the pipeline, which I think in some ways even made it more exciting. Sure, sure. Give me your, your second moment in uh, highlight of history. Of course, these aren't in, in any right. kind of sequential order. I have to say our induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame was monumental, not for the reasons that some people may think, but it was, it was right. It was justice. And I hate to see the bad guy win. <laughs> and I really felt like... Um, no matter how high we jumped, suddenly the criteria changed and we had to jump higher. You're right, so, exactly. Yeah. So it was, well, wait a minute. We've, we've filled every box for, <laughs> for a decade. And, yeah. and yet this isn't about a, a small group of people's individual taste. Mm -hmm. This is undeniable. So I think it was vindication for our fans. Yes. And for me, it was justice and also knowing that there was a changing of the guard at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame yep. and some of the more bloated dinosaurs, so to speak, were either dying by the wayside or mm -hmm. becoming extinct. And knowing that people like you were coming in made it really exciting because I actually saw the concept of a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame taking on validity and yes. credibility. Yes. Um, really being inducted was a very, very big point for me. And it's something that uh, I'm really proud of for more well, reasons than the obvious. Well, that's that's on my list as well. One, it was an honor to induct Kiss into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But two, it was it was that journey that you referenced because I was on tour um, playing guitar in Bruce Springsteen's band and John Landau, the manager of Bruce Springsteen, is one of the guys who runs the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And we would sit in hotel bar after hotel bar around the world, me telling him like, I'm a kid who loved rock and roll. I'm a grown-up who loves rock and roll. And I think the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame has it all wrong. If you're a kid like me playing rock and roll, none of your favorite bands are in there. You don't care about it. And so he said, give me an example. I said, kiss. I said, he, like, he rolled his eyes. I'm like, let me explain why. And to, to his credit, though, he put me in the room. And he said, get in the room and make your argument. And then we'll see where... And of course, the you know I made my argument. Which the speech that I gave in the room was not dissimilar to the one that I gave that night. And since then, the you know from Rush to Stevie Ray Vaughan to Kiss to Randy Rhodes, you know, there's been a, a loosening of the screws with regards to that. But Kiss, I think, was the was a huge domino to fall, and it was. I'm happy to hear you say that because it really did feel like it was a vindication. Speaking the thing that Kiss fans have felt, people don't remember like what, like we were real outsiders, and there was danger at totally. junior high and high school to Absolutely. wear that Kiss shirt. Yeah, there was danger. Totally. <laughs> totally. Um, people. Um... We're, we're subject to bodily harm. Yes, you, for, for, <laughs> there was for, danger. Yeah, <laughs> for being a KISS fan. And, yeah. um, you know, this, this set set things right. 
All right, give me your, uh, what's your number three? I have to say getting our first gold album, not platinum. Platinum didn't exist when I was growing up. Right. And you aspired, at least I aspired, to a gold album. I, I saw Elvis Presley had gold albums. Yeah. And, <laughs> and then the Beatles. And, and to walk that path and to reach that goal was uh, so exciting and, and so, so uh, much a sense of having succeeded at something that I want to say I dreamed of, but dream, dreaming uh, minimizes the effort that went into it. You know, if you can dream something, then you have to figure out how to implement it and make it real. So to get that first gold album was incredible to which, me. Which record was it? It was, was Kiss Alive. Oh, Kiss Alive was the first gold record. Yeah. Kiss Alive yeah. was the yeah. first gold album. Yeah. And interestingly, when we were putting it together, I said to Bill O'Coin, our manager, and really fifth member, Bill was as intrinsic in everything in the beginning as any member of the band. I said to him, do you think we'll sell 300,000 copies? And he said, more or less, he said, well, that would be nice. Mm -hmm. you yeah. Know, if, yeah. And we sold 1 million, yeah. uh, 2 million, yeah. 3, and it just kept going. But that first gold album was what a kid from Manhattan and Queens aspired to and yeah. dreamed of. Uh, what came afterwards was icing on the cake, but that gold album meant I had arrived. Where were you when you heard the news? We got our first gold album at Nassau Coliseum. Really, at that point, the success and the levels of success came in such fast sequence that it was head-turning. Um, yeah, yeah. As I said, one minute you're putting out an album and... I remember I would say to our road manager backstage before shows, I would always say, how are we doing? And what that was, was how are we selling? How's the uh, audience capacity? I remember, you know, we're at 80% or we're 70%. And I remember one night he said, uh, we're sold out. And I was like, wow. And then the next show I went, how are we doing? He said, we're sold out. And I remember being in, Dayton, Ohio, I believe. And the curtain, we had curtains in front of this particular venue. And I remember before we went on, I peeked out and I was just blown away to see this place packed. Yeah, in Dayton. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm Tom Morello. You're listening to Maximum Firepower. My guest today is Paul Stanley, the lead singer and frontman of KISS as we discuss our top 10 favorite moments in history. So next on my list is my first concert, which was the Chicago Stadium, 1977, my first ever concert. And I do remember lining up at Ticketron, I believe was what, what sold the mm -hmm. tickets back then. Ticketron on a very cold Chicago morning. And my ticket read, as I recounted in the Hall of Fame, so we just said, a partial view of Kiss. That means I got, man, I got there late. And so my seat was behind a pole at the stage right side of the stage, and Uriah Heep was the opening band. And it was still the most cathartic, exciting, you know, two hours of my life to be in that room with the music that now had built up in me. You know, and I was I knew every nuance of the of the records to have them sort of come to life and the stuff because the it's it, you can't really overestimate the mystique element because we only heard that there were 
like the bands that were in my town, every guy had one amplifier. We heard that there were stacks of amplifiers. That seemed like an unbelievable. There was a there was blood, there was smoke, there was a drum ride. All these were just sort of mythical things that you saw in a magazine, and they were happening before me. If they were becoming flesh before my eyes, and it was just like you know that was the the moment where the Holy Spirit of rock and roll entered me, and I was like, well, that's you know I'm in for life on that one, man. I know what you're saying, and I have to credit some degree, if not a, a large degree, to Bill Coin, mm-hmm. because Bill said to us at one point, and you're never going to be seen without makeup. And I was like, what? You know, <laughs> wait a minute, I want to go out and have a great time and be yeah, recognized. Yeah. And uh, he was right. It was yeah. part of building that mystique that um, at that time was essential. The idea of uh, we got away with things that you could never do today. We we had people with us who would pull film from cameras mm-hmm. if they saw mm-hmm. somebody take a picture of us. Yeah. And it really was building this aura and mystique that Kiss basically existed as Superman. And that's right. There was no Clark Kent. That's right. There was no Clark Kent. What's your next one? The Detroit reunion show at Tiger um, Stadium. Tiger Stadium. Yep. We came back, and I certainly had a a great amount of trepidation and didn't know how we would be accepted or if we would be ridiculed and laughed Mm -hmm. at. I remember going to the Grammys as a surprise, and we told nobody, and we went on to give the award with Tupac. That's right. And so help me, I remember being backstage thinking, I hope nobody laughs. Yeah. I hope nobody, when we walk out, takes it as some sort of joke or takes us as some sort of joke. And I do remember looking out in the audience and seeing a lot of people that I respected. And it was like a switch suddenly turned and they became kids again. And to to see musicians who were in very well-respected bands suddenly have that twinkle in their eyes and and their jaw drop. It was, I just got a chill because it was a a real moment of uh, putting a lot of doubts to rest. And when we were going to do Tiger Stadium, first of all, we thought Doc was out of his mind. Doc McGee had come on board as our manager and Gene and I, he was the only guy we ever even considered. And sure enough, when we sat down with him, he just got it. He knew what we were all about. And, and, uh, but I remember, um, some people going, Oh, you, you know, oh, you're going to do some shows in theaters or you're going to warm up or this and that. And Doc goes, No, we're playing Tiger Stadium. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh my God, you know, yeah. is this insane? Yeah. And Doc knew more than I did because, mm-hmm. uh, that show sold out in 45 minutes. And, to walk out on that stage and know that it meant so much to people that they had traveled, flown from halfway around the world. It was this huge responsibility to be KISS, you know, not just play those songs, but be what they remember. And and quite honestly, what they remembered was inaccurate. Mm-hmm. We had to be what they thought they saw and yeah. what they thought they heard, which was really interesting because You have to remember that our original shows by today's standards were primitive. There was, there was nothing there, Mm -hmm. but people remember 
that compared to everything else, it was a behemoth. That's right. So we had to create the stage that was on par with what they remembered. And I do remember being out on that stage and feeling before the, the kabuki dropped, the kabuki is the curtain that instead of spreading open, it just drops to the floor. And before the kabuki dropped, you could feel this just tidal wave of energy from the other side. You just felt this incredible sense of anticipation. And um, when that curtain dropped, you know, we had to deliver as best as we could. And uh, it was thrilling. It was because it was something people thought was never going to happen. You know what I mean? And never going to see those four people as the characters again. And I remember the anticipation. Now, I had a preview of that. And the next one on my list uh, is drawn from a place called Cole Rehearsal in Hollywood, California. I remember. Yes. So so I was there. We were having rate. It was just probably 1995, either 94 or 95. And we were, had a Rage Against the Machine rehearsal space wow. locked out there. And I remember one day we were in some kind of sort of dreary band argument or something. And I'm like, hold on. I'm like, everybody shut up for one second. And I thought I heard the song Come On and Love Me being played in the hall in one of the other rooms. And it sounded like Paul Stanley was singing. I'm like, everybody shut up. So I go out in the hall and I'm, I put my ear to the door and I'll be like, I'll be damned if that is not Paul Stanley singing Come On and Love Me. So I go to the, the front desk and Tony, the guy at the front desk, mm-hmm. and I'm like, I'm like, Tony, who's in D? And he's like, I can't say. I'm like, oh, my gosh. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, of course, I lingered around the cold rehearsal studio. It's not there anymore, but it's where Rage recorded the Evil Empire record. It was a very humble rehearsal studio with maybe about six rooms around at a very sort of uh, a bargain basement price. But mm-hmm. we always went there. We just loved it. Felt very comfortable there. And so I hung out around the pool table to see who's coming out of there. And sure enough, it was, you know, the original four members of KISS. And... I was just like, wow. And you guys, we had some months where we overlapped there and, yes. and uh, sort of got to see as it it went from zero to what it became at Tiger Stadium. Interestingly, first of all, you guys were phenomenal and also phenomenally loud. Yes. Um, <laughs> but I do remember that it was a conscious decision for us to rehearse there. The idea of starting off too big mm-hmm. or putting the... Uh, silver spoon back in people's mouths was only going to hurt us. And whether it was hiring trainers that everybody had to work out and some people really didn't like it or rehearsing in a a studio that was questionable for a band that was, uh, it was humble. It was a very humble rehearsal studio. Yeah. yeah, But it's not unlike when Rocky went back to, to, to Philly to, to, uh, train in in his old gym. I remember it quite well. And I I do remember having to adjust somewhat Mm -hmm. to playing with Ace and Peter again, because we had been playing with Bruce and Eric, and that's a different perspective. Let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, I I had to say, wait a minute, we're trying to be the band that was, not the band that we just kind of split up. Right, right. And those were two different animals. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that whole period of, of gearing up, whether it was the Grammys or rehearsing at Cole, that led to doing Tiger Stadium. It was a rejuvenation for us and um, something I never, ever wanted to be a part of or thought about until 
I kind of started to think about the fact that nobody lives forever mm-hmm. and that we are, we're all fragile creatures. And, you know, if we're going to do this, it makes sense to do it while the four of us are still intact. Yeah. Yes. So it became enticing. And, and then it was just a matter of, you know, getting everybody on board, which wasn't yeah. as easy yeah. as one may think. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was great to watch that grow at Cole. Also, give me your number for what's your fifth and final. This may seem anticlimactic, but I do think that when we solidified the lineup, the final lineup with Eric and Tommy mm-hmm. was a game changer. That's 20 years ago or so. And there wouldn't be a kiss without them. Mm-hmm. And there wouldn't be the camaraderie or the dedication to being kiss, which sadly was lacking for a while. Mm-hmm. The, the commitment to being kiss and respecting the legend. And I, I mean that as a fan. You know, I, I say to people, I'm not only, you know, in the band, I'm a fan of the band. Sure. And it was disheartening at some point to see that people have really lost pride in what the band was and what the band had accomplished, to see that all renewed and to see people who were proud to be there and play their asses off and are a joy to be around. I'm here to say there would be no kiss. This band that's going to play stadiums and arenas and headline festivals, it wouldn't exist. Mm-hmm. You know, it wouldn't exist if Tommy and Eric hadn't come in and picked up the flag and run proudly. For my final one, I will piggyback off that. I had to sort of decide between two. The The one that was the runner-up was the... Um, being able to introduce you guys at the beginning of the farewell tour at the whiskey, a small whiskey, a go, go small club on the sunset strip where you had never played before a place where every band has played kiss finally played there, you know, a few couple of years ago. Uh, and that was just great to be able to say, you know, you wanted the best, you got the best on that stage and have you guys come out and blow the place apart. Uh, but the one that I did choose was bringing my kids to see kiss for mm. the first time. I've done that a number of times. But they became, you know, KISS fans young. There was always that they you know, dressed up as KISS for Halloween. You guys have always been very gracious when we've come to the show uh, to make them feel at home. But to be in the audience with that same kind of feeling of emergent joy and connection to rock and roll, they discovered the band younger than I did. You know, to be singing Shout It Out Loud, to, you know, the record that I picked up at the grocery store or whatever that now you're singing with your kids you know, and connecting the generations and the the history of this band and that great music connecting the generations was really pretty awesome. And to, you know, have the circle closed and then to be able to introduce the band, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. For me, who was super fan of the kids, and it was the band that made me love rock and roll. And it was the band that made my kids then love rock and roll. And so that connecting those generations was really meaningful. I have to say, it's really palpable, even from the stage, when you see parents or grandparents, when you see two or three generations (laughs) just in this joyous state of sharing with each other Mm -hmm. and passing down something that's meant so much to them. I I totally understand it. The joy that I've seen in parents' faces when they're sharing that experience with their kids. Honestly, that doesn't exist with a lot of bands. That's right. You know, that, that because it goes beyond music. It's more a snapshot of your life and who you were Mm -hmm. and what you were going through. 
and the joy that you felt and to share that. Look, there's nothing more important than our children. Mm -hmm. I mean, when we're gone, we live on through them. But yes, I, I totally understand what you're saying. There's nothing, nothing that I think uh, has the potential to be more important and uh, make us emotive, you know, than what we share with our children. And if they embrace it like we did, oh my gosh, I mean, yeah. how amazing. It's pretty special. Well, Paul, thank you so much. One, thank you so much for decades of excellent kiss rocking. Uh, and thanks for doing this interview. It's always a pleasure seeing you, talking with you, and uh, safe travels on the continuing kiss tour. And uh, I hope to run into you again in person soon. You betcha. And back at you and Roman and the whole family. I'll let them know. Lots of love, Paul. I'm Tom Morello. You've been listening to Maximum Firepower. So great having my guest, Paul Stanley, on. Until next time, brothers and sisters, shout it out loud. Take it easy, but take it. Let foes of justice tremble. This has been Tom Morello's Maximum Firepower. Hear this episode again or listen to past shows right now on the SiriusXM app. Search Maximum Firepower.